Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It occurred to me when Will got up and um, started to speak this morning and he talked about his marriage to our daughter Morgan, which was a couple of weeks ago today, uh, that through that wedding, really, we've acquired another son. So that's kind of a cool thing. And uh, we're excited about that. And it made me think a little bit about fatherhood just kind of in general. You know, we have kids biologically and, and then some of us adopt kids and some of us don't do either of those things. But we become a dad in some way to someone. We're an uncle, we're a coach, we're a mentor, we're a friend. We get to do those kinds of things. And so on behalf of the church uh, and our family, I want to say Happy Father's Day to all of you guys out there actually, because you all of you have the opportunity and the privilege to play that role in somebody's life, okay? But as Will said, last week we began a series of messages out of the Psalms, and we are calling it the Psalms Praise in the Day of Trouble and Prosperity, and I'm going to explain that here in just a second, but it's a series of messages from the book of Psalms, which is a book of worship. If you're familiar with the book of Psalms, it is a collection of poems and prayers and songs and hymns and all of these different things, and if that is not exciting to you, like if you're not one of those guys who's going, yeah, poetry, um, then let me kind of explain why you should be excited, Okay. And here's where the title comes into. What makes the Psalms so incredibly compelling, and frankly, reportedly at least, the most preached from book of the Bible in the history of the Christian church. So feel the weight of that for a second. What makes the Psalms so compelling is not only that they are the Word of God to us, and that God, by His Spirit, superintended the writing of these Psalms, but they're the Word of God for us, and that God, by His Spirit, superintended the writing of these psalms through people who were just like us and who experienced all the same kinds of things that we experience in life, and frankly, when it comes to the psalms, who sat down to write these things under the superintending Spirit of God in the midst of their greatest lows and greatest highs. Greatest failures, there's a psalm in that. Greatest success, there's a psalm in that. Defeat, victory. Sorrow, joy, days of trouble, and days of prosperity too. And so what the Psalms effectively teach us to do is this. They teach us how to live and to worship and to serve and to follow our King, guys, faithfully during our days of trouble and during our days of prosperity as well. And last week we began this series on the Psalms where the Psalms begin with Psalm 1. 
And Ryan brought that message, and I just want to stop for a moment and just thank Ryan for his work on this. You know, going back many, many, many months now, I said, you know, I want to do a series on the Psalms, and we talked it through as a staff, and then he sat down, and he is the grand architect of this series, and I think that you're going to experience the blessings of the brilliance of the way that he has architected this series. And he also did a terrific job leading us off last week when he talked to us about Psalm 1. And so one of the things that we learned about Psalm 1 is that Psalm 1 is half of the gateway. Together with Psalm 2, it forms the gateway to the rest of the Psalms. In other words, if you don't get Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, which we'll talk about next, then Psalm 3 and the rest you don't completely appreciate and understand. You've got to walk through the gates. So what did we see last week? Well, we saw that the psalmist came to us in Psalm 1 and said, hey, let me tell you something about all your lows and all your highs, all your failures, all your successes, all your defeats, all your victories, all your sorrows, all your joys, all your days of trouble, all your days of prosperity. Here's what they do. They bring you to an intersection and they present you with exactly two options, two roads. There is the road of the blessed and then there is the road of the cursed. And as Ryan taught us last week, listen, the road of the blessed is not the road of the blessed because it's immediately apparent when you look at these two roads that the road of the blessed is the easy road. It's not the easy road. And oftentimes, it's immediately apparent that that's going to be the more difficult road. The road of the blessed is the road of the blessed because of how it ends, as is the road of the cursed. All of us are on a road. Actually, we're on several. The road of marriage, the road of relationship, the road of health, the road of you know, professionalism and career. And a road with the Lord, too. And they all end somewhere, don't they? So what is the road of the blessed? It is the road of faithfully walking together through life, following Christ our King. And where does it end? It ends in His celestial city. It ends in the city of hope and love and peace and joy. It ends in eternal life and prosperity. It ends in our share of His infinite inheritance. It ends in everything that we're longing for and looking for. That's where it ends. Where does the road of the cursed end? It ends in the judgment of the king. And that is a really awkward and uncomfortable thing to say. In fact, as Drew was up here reading that psalm, I'm thinking to myself, man, I wonder what some folks are thinking because it's wrath and it's fury and he's going to shatter you with the rod and we're going get to get to all that in a second. But it's kind of, you know, intense. So I want to defend the judgment of God for a moment. Not that he needs me as his defender. But I just want to say that God must judge all of the evil, awful things that happen in this life. Or he's not a very good God and he certainly isn't a very good king. Is he? Because if he doesn't do anything about it in the end, effectively what he is saying is, ah, you know what, forget about everything that I've said about justice and everything that I've said about oppression and everything that I've said about evil and everything that I've ever said about wickedness and everything that I've ever said about sickness and sorrow and death and all of the suffering of the world. You know what, in the end I really didn't care. If there's no vindication, if there's no justice rendered, if there's no things settled and accounts made right, wow, who is he? He's not who we expect or want him to be. You long for that kind of stuff, don't you? The Lord must judge. And Psalm 1 serves as sort of the first half of the gateway. One side of the gate to the Psalms and that it introduces us to this idea that pretty much everything that we experience in life brings us to that intersection and presents us with those two choices. And then beginning with Psalm 3 and moving forward throughout the rest of the Psalms, what do you have? 
You have example after example after example after example after example from person after person after person after person who in the midst of their lows and highs and failures and successes and so forth under the inspiration of God's Spirit teach us how to faithfully walk the road of the blessed. How to walk it even in the midst of darkness holding on to the hand of our King who is alone light. It's a beautiful, amazing education. Incredibly practical. But before you get to Psalm 3, you come to Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, here's what you find. It's really a who. You find your king. Psalm 2 comes and presents us with the king whose road we're called to walk together with him that ends in his city. And what it's calling us to do, bottom line, is to find our refuge in the king. And in fact, if you take Psalm 2 and just try to summarize it, which is what I've tried to do, I would summarize it like this. There is no refuge from King Jesus. Like at the end of my life, in your life, or at the end of all time, or both, really, there's nowhere else to go. I mean, there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to conceal ourselves. There is no refuge from King Jesus. But then here's the good news, and the relieving news, quite frankly. There is refuge in King Jesus. So what is the psalmist doing? He's jumping up and down and saying, hey, listen, today is the day of refuge. Today is the day of salvation. Come to the king and give yourself to him. Speaking ultimately about King Jesus, the psalmist says this in Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1. He says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot what? In vain. So here's what he's not asking. He's not looking at the huddled masses of humanity that, as this psalm pictures it, are all in open rebellion against God and have huddled together, if you will, to wage war against Him for the ownership and control of their own lives. Sound familiar? It's what we all want. It's what we all want. He's not looking at all of them and wondering why they're doing that or why we do that when we do that. He already understands the answer to that. He's going to give us the answer to that in verse 3 in just a minute. What he's doing is he's looking at all of this and then he's looking at God and he's saying, Hey, guys, what are you trying to accomplish here? You're taking on the king of the universe. So, you know, like, how do you think that's going to go for you? And you want to, you know, belly up to the table and arm wrestle God. I mean, are you expecting to win? Like what? This is abject foolishness. Let me put it a different way. How do you think this road is going to end? He's, he's incredulous. He says, why? Why would you do this? Why do the nations rage against King Jesus and the people's plot in vain, to which he adds the kings of the earth with whom all the peoples are in complete solidarity is the idea. It's a picture of universal rebellion set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying what? Because this reveals why they and why all of us at times do this. And before I show you the answer, let me just give it to you in different language. It's because we all understand that a king is not a politician. That's it. It's the whole answer. A politician, what is that? That's somebody that we delegate limited authority to and only for a limited period of time that's clearly defined. And we do that by electing that person into office. And as, far, as long as that person mostly leaves us alone and does what we think is in our own best interests, well, then we're good with that person. But let them step out of line. And then what? 
And then we feel free to criticize and malign them. We feel free to withhold our resources from them. We feel free to kind of conspire together against them to do what? To get them voted out of office. Get them out. Get the next guy in. Let's repeal these laws. Let's put new laws in. It's all flexible. It's all give and take. That's not the way it is with a king. And it is absolutely not the way that it is with King Jesus. It's very different. It's the king of the universe. So King Jesus comes to us as the all-wise all-knowing, all-powerful king of the universe who far from leaving us alone claims, and this is the key word, ownership of every square inch of our lives and then governs over our lives according to his greater wisdom even when we don't like what he's doing. And he's not trying to win our vote. And he doesn't care if we follow him on Twitter. He is completely unconcerned with his popularity. But let me tell you who he is completely and utterly concerned with. And that's you. He's completely and utterly concerned with you. And when you doubt that, and you will doubt that, why will you doubt that? Because at times he will introduce circumstances into your life that seem to indicate, at least to your mind, that he's not concerned with you. Why would he do that? That you might learn to walk by faith. That you might look at the cross and see his love settled for you for forever and definitively. That you might open the Psalms and learn how to hold the hand of your king and follow him even through the dark seasons. For he is himself light. So the nations and all of us, at least at times, rebel against the reign and rule of King Jesus because he's a king and not a politician. And therefore, there's no hope of forcing him out of office. There's no hope of repealing any of his laws. No, no, no. When he gives us a law, we have to then keep it. Or not. But or not comes with consequences. And so what that does is it makes his law to us feel enslaving, feel constricting, it's suffocating, it's, it's restrictive, and we don't like that. And that's why they, in the psalm, and we at times as well, say this in verse 3. It's, they say, let us burst their bonds apart, their enslaving bonds of the law of God, and cast away their cords or commandments from us because they make us feel restricted. But I think it's worth stopping and asking, is that actually what the law of God does? Is it enslaving? Is it? Because that is not the testimony of the Bible. And I'd venture to say that if you look carefully at your own life and at what has enslaved you, you'd realize, good grief, no, it isn't the law of God. And in fact, that would have kept me from it. Very practical stuff. Listen to what James says. James 1 verse 25. He says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of God, the law of Christ, the law of what? Because now he describes it of enslavement? No, he says the law of liberty, meaning the law of freedom, the one who looks into the perfect law of Christ, which is a law of freedom and perseveres in obedience is the idea, being no hearer who forgets what the law commands him to do, but a doer who acts on what the law commands him to do. He will be what? He will be blessed in his doing of the law of God is the idea. And so what James is saying is, listen, far from enslaving you, God's law sets you free. And you say, all right, so free from what? Okay. Ready? Free from yourself. 
Just work that through. Free from the passions, free from the desires, free from the selfish, sinful inclinations that if left unchecked in any one of us, do not lead us to freedom, do they? They lead us to slavery. They lead us to regret. They lead us to addiction. They lead us to ruin. The Apostle John puts it this way in 1 John 5, verse 3. He says, for this is the love of God. Meaning, here's how we express our love for God. He says that we keep His commandments. And then he describes the commandments. And what's his commentary? He says, and His commandments are, here we go, not burdensome. And you know what? Here's when we become burdened when we don't do them. That's what happens. It's the great irony in following Jesus. The great irony is that in seeking freedom from Jesus, we end up enslaved. But in enslaving ourselves, in submitting to Jesus, we then end up free. George MacDonald says this, and I think it's brilliant. He says, the one principle of hell, meaning of everyone who ends up there ultimately, is this. It is, I am my own. There it is. God, I am not yours, I'm my own. I'm not, I don't belong to the person I'm married to, I'm my own. I don't belong to my kids or parents, I'm my own. You know, you people I work with, you don't have any share in me, I am my own. Bottom line, I am my own. Which, by the way, will introduce all kinds of hell into your life before you arrive as well. Why? Because I am my own imports a whole lot of hell into a marriage relationship, for example. It doesn't work into your professional life, into your relationship with your kids and parents and, and eventually everything else. And so the psalmist looks at this rebellious spirit that honestly lives within all of us. Like natively, we come forth from the womb going, I am my own, don't we? I mean, come on, if you have kids, you know this. You don't teach them how to lie. You don't teach them how to be selfish. You know, you don't teach them how to be disrespectful. You don't have to do any of those things. They come by it naturally. And what is one of the first words they learn? Mine. And no, that's the other one, right? This is who we are by nature. God through Christ offers you a new nature, you see? It's a change. Fundamentally, constitutionally. Anyway, the psalmist looks at this rebellious spirit that lives within all of us that wants to shake its fist in God's face and to say, I am my own. Leave me alone. Keep your law. I don't care that it's freedom. And he says, what? Why? Can't believe it. Why do the nations rage against King Jesus and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth with whom all of the peoples of the earth are in complete solidarity set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us so that we can live for ourselves because we are our own. That's the idea. But then the psalmist's gaze shifts from earth and all of these armies brought together with all of their strength and all of their kings to heaven. And man, it is a completely different deal. He says, he who sits or literally is enthroned in the heavens does what in response to all of this rebellion? He laughs. And the Lord, he says, holds them in derision. But why? Because, well, you know, whereas from the perspective of all of these kings and all of humanity and everybody come together to do battle against the Lord for control and ownership of their own lives, you know, they might think they look pretty intimidating. Yeah, like from heaven, they look like a pile of ants. And I don't mean like, you know, red ants that bite or anything, because that kind of freaks me out. I'm talking like sugar ants, okay? Like, you need, a, you, know, you need a microscope to almost see them ants. They're nothing 
It's comical in some sense. And the word laughs refers to a particular kind of laughter. It refers to the laughter of victory. So then what does that mean? It, it, it means that, that as God looks down on us, as we shake our fist in his face and say, I am my own, you know, I don't belong to you or anyone else, and I want control and ownership of my life, and I'm willing to rebel against you and do battle against you and not live for you, blah, blah, blah. He looks down at that, and he laughs as though the battle that we would have against him has already been fought and he's already won. For how can, he can't, how can he not win? That's the incredulity of the psalmist. He's, he's scratching his head going, so how's this arm wrestling match going to end? Where does the road end? It's wisdom. And so the psalmist says, he who sits or is enthroned in the heaven laughs at this rebellion and the Lord holds them in derision to which he adds and then he will speak to them and oh, this is an uncomfortable word, in his wrath and terrify them in an even more uncomfortable word, in his fury because if he doesn't, if he doesn't vindicate himself in his good name, if justice is not meted out, if the accounts are not settled, he's not good and he is good. And then what does he say? He says, as for me, this is God the Father speaking, I, God the Father, have set my king, meaning Jesus Christ, God the Son, on Zion, my holy hill, which is not, I think, a reference to the hill in the city of Jerusalem here on earth that the temple used to stand on, but his heavenly hill, his heavenly Jerusalem, his heavenly Zion. In other words, he's saying, listen, I have placed Jesus Christ on the throne of the universe from which he rules and reigns right now. And you say, well, when did that happen? You know, well, it happened after his resurrection and then ascension back into heaven. What does Jesus say? Some of his parting words are these. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's not coming back someday to occupy an earthly throne. My goodness, what a demotion. He's coming back to bring it all to a close. To offer blessing and life to those who find refuge in him, which is what the psalm is calling us to do. And otherwise to settle the accounts, to bring vindication. And so God says, as for me, I, God the Father, have, have set my king, meaning Jesus, God the Son, on Zion, my holy hill. And now in verse 7, you hear the king, Jesus, speak. And he says, I will tell of the decree of God the Father, because by that decree, he receives right and title to rule. And so here it is. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance or your inheritance and the ends of the earth. It's a universal kingdom, your possession. And when you come in judgment against those who have shaken their fist in your face and said, I'm my own and thus made themselves your enemies. Here's some more strong language. He says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is not mild stuff, is it? Man, what does that mean? Well, the people in the psalmist day would have understood that. They would have heard it a little bit differently because they were ancient Near Eastern people and they understood the practice of ancient Near Eastern kings. These guys would take a clay pot and then they would write the names of all of their enemies on the clay pot. And then before their people, they would take a rod of iron and they would Babe Ruth it, okay? They would just shatter it to pieces as an emblem 
of what they hoped at least to be able to do to their enemies in battle. God's not hoping to win the battle. He's looking at a pile of ants. <laughs> He's laughing as though it's already won. There's not an even match. And what it ought to inspire in us is a question. And the question is, okay, so if that's what he'll do to his enemies in the end, because that's justice, that's actual authentic vindication, then how do I become his friend? Because, you know, I'm not interested in the other option. And the answer to that, I think, is by having your heart shattered in this life by his word, which is what his word is designed to do. Writing of Jesus 700 years before he came into this world and had his earthly ministry, Isaiah, foreseeing that ministry, says this in Isaiah 11, verse 4. He says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth. Now, why does that matter? Because if you go earlier in the Bible, you, you read that the Lord God created the man from the dust of the earth. We're all of us clay pots, is the idea. He will strike the clay pots. He will shatter us, but with what? With the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Which is exactly what he did and does. I mean, Jesus didn't come conquering with a sword. He came preaching. He came conquering with the word. And I mean, if I just use myself as an example. So he shattered my heart by his word, which revealed to me that, you know, hey, my bono in life used to be, I am my own. And occasionally, that still shows up. It's amazing how selfish I can be. I am my own. And the utter and complete meaninglessness and futility of that. My goodness, I'm going to live my whole life for the little God of me. And then what? <laughs> really, like, how impressive is that? Seriously. I'm called to something more than that, and so are you, which is dignity, isn't it? You're called to live for the greatest God. You're called to live on His great adventure and mission. You're called to walk the path of the blessed. That He walks together with you. That He purchases and gives you at the price of His own blood. But He not only shattered my heart with those realizations and a thousand others, but then he healed my heart with his word as well because he comes not just with judgment, okay, but with grace, not just with, you know, justice, but with mercy, not just the shattering wrath and fury of God and, you know, the iron rod and the whole stuff, but with the shattering reality of the love of God that is shown to me and shown to you in the King who is Jesus Christ who absorbed the shattering wrath and fury and rod of God on the cross so that we might be free of it. Justice is meted out on all, or it's meted out on him for us. But somebody pays. That's the point. And so what the psalmist is doing is saying, receive the payment of the Christ and become his friend authentically. And he begins that pleading in verse 10. He says, now therefore, O kings and everyone else whose motto in life is I am my own. Do what? Be wise. See the scenario for what it is. He's not hiding this. He says, be warned, O rulers of the earth. No surprises, none. And do what? Make a profession of faith? No, do what everyone who makes an authentic profession of faith learns then to do. To serve the Lord. And the word serve here means to recognize Him as Lord over your entire existence. It's all-encompassing. Serve the Lord. 
and do it with fear, with awe, with reverence, and rejoice in who he is and in all that he's done for you with trembling. Kiss the son, which is a sign of, of abject humility and submission before the one who is the great king. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But there's still time, and, and here's why we know that, because the psalmist then comes to us and says, blessed are all who lay down their rebellion, who stop with the I am my own stuff, who bring to him their sin in their lives, and who find refuge in him. So bottom line, there is no refuge from King Jesus, but there is refuge in King Jesus, in his life, sufferings, death, burial, resurrection, by which he took our judgment and offers eternal life in response. And so I've got two questions, and then I'm done, and hopefully they're predictable. So what road are you on? In your marriage, in your career, with your health, in your relationships, but let's talk about the psalm. (laughs) With God, because there are two. The road of the blessed and the cursed. And the blessed road is not always the easy road, but it's the road of the king. It's the road in which you go through the hard times with him. And it ends where you want to end. And then lastly, what is the motto of your life? Is it, I am my own, or is it, okay... I used to be my own and occasionally I still claim to be my own, but then I repent of that and do away from it. And actually now, I'm his. I'm living for a king and for a cause so much greater than me. And in that, there is meaning and purpose and life and joy and peace. So chew on that and work that through with the Lord, okay? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank you for the Lord Christ who is King. And I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would awaken our hearts and our minds to the reality that there is one on the throne, that his name is Jesus, and that he has come and suffered and died and risen, that he's done everything that needed to be done. He was shattered by your wrath and fury that we might know your heart-shattering, life-changing love. Humble us, God. Remove our little fists from the air. Let us realize who we are in relation to you and where we stand. And through Jesus, make us your friends. And then teach us to walk the road of the blessed. Lord, we pray for this study as we're now just entering into the beginning of it, really. God, that week by week, we might learn from your word and faithful people who have gone before what it looks like to praise you and to worship you in our days of trouble and in our days of prosperity. For both belong to you and you deserve the whole of them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.